from Kurtco Media. But we really were looking at that frenzy that occurred from January 1969 until the end of production 1970. That was the voice of Mark Fletcher, one of our guests today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to what promises to be one of the most lively conversations we've had on the show in a long time with my guests, Rich Truesdale and Mark Fletcher. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bob. (laughs) It is so great to have you here because we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart. Now, of course, I, unlike the both of you, only know enough to be dangerous. You two guys know so much that you're very, very dangerous because by the time this show is over, I'm going to want to buy a muscle car. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Specifically talk about your upcoming book, 1970 Maximum Muscle, The Pinnacle of Muscle Car Power. That's going to be available a little later this year, probably sometime circa March or when the clouds of COVID disperse. The book's published by Motor Books, which is an imprint of Quarto Publishing. And I know they've come out with some great work. And I've seen a prototype of your book, and it is absolutely fascinating. It's going to end up on my shelf. So welcome, guys. Maybe we'll start with Rich. Rich Truesdell is a noted automotive journalist. We've been reading his articles, publications for, dare I say, decades, but a guy my age can say that. Your credentials go way back long before the era of OBD2 and we've seen your work in everything from muscle car enthusiast, Mopar Muscle, Muscle Car Review. You're a serious Ford GT junkie. I know you've got an important story that circulated around the world there. I think you even dabbled in Porsche 911s and some stuff that we're not going to talk about today. And you were also a voice in the world of car audio because I know that our paths crossed back in the Stone Age when I was working with Kirko on some print magazines and at the time car audio was in the stable. That's a heck of a resume. The genesis of Maximum Muscle goes back about 12 years ago when one of the editors at CarTech came to me and said, could you do a book on George Hurst and and Hurst Manufacturing? And I said, I can give it a shot. And at that time I was doing magazine work, but not no book work. And as soon as I got into the book, I knew why two other authors could not pull it together. So I brought in a friend, my best friend, Mark Fletcher, and we got Hearst equipped out. It published in 2012. And so it went. And I continued to do magazine work. Then uh, around 2017, the option on the book was about to expire. And I was hoping, quite frankly, to get the book back and self-publish it in a revised edition. It didn't work out that way. And when the book was taken out of print, they offered, and this would be CarTech, all of the remaining books for a fixed fee. And we jumped on it. We took all 406 copies, and there's some significance to that. And we shipped some of them to the initial inaugural Hearst Carlisle Nationals, sold about 50 books. That left us with about 350, which we shipped home to California. And over the past almost four years, we sold off all the remaining copies to the point that I sold the last copy in hardbound on last Thursday and yesterday, actually this morning, I got an email from somebody who had already gotten the book because we shipped it to a local California address and he loved it. He was really happy about that. And that leads into Maximum Muscle. Several years ago, and it was late 2018, I went 
to Bartek and said, can we do a 69 and a half book? Because most people don't realize the significance of that half year. And Mark had a 69 Scrambler at the time, AMC Scrambler. I then took it to their competitor, which would be Motor Books. And it was at a time when they were having some editorial changes in personnel. It kind of got lost. And all of a sudden, the new acquisitions editor, Dennis Parnu, came to me and said, would you pick up the pieces of our 1970 book? And I said, yes. And I said, could we incorporate as a prelude the 69 and a half cars? Because they are just so intertwined and so significant. And he said, yes. And then I turned to Mark again a decade later and said, you want to come in on this? And then I'll just let Mark take the rest of the story. That's a great genesis of this book. Mark Fletcher, probably time for you to get a word in edgewise here. I mean, you're the real deal among uh, muscle car experts. And I know that your research and writing really informed considerable part of this book. So it's really a great collaboration with most of the photographs coming from Rich and most of the research and writing coming from Mark. Where to even start? I guess it's really important for our audience to understand that the muscle car phenomenon was a very short-lived one. A lot of things conspired against it, gosh, by the fuel crisis of the early 70s and the EPA, all the emissions regulations. I mean, really kind of put the kibosh on some pretty exciting stuff that was happening. And by that virtue, your book is divided into those two parts, talking about the preamble, the 69 and a halfs, and then the 70s, which really was the most fluorescent part of the whole muscle car era. But where did it begin? I mean, like, what was the first muscle car? That can be debated. My definition of muscle car, and we try and equate this in the book so that other people can understand what we're using as the yardstick. And that is less than 10 pounds per horsepower was the measurement that we used. So therefore, a 3,000 pound car had to have more than 300 horsepower in order to be considered in a muscle car era. And by that standard, we feel that the 64 GTO was the first car that exceeded that amount. And there were many more after that, but that also allowed us to get smaller cars and bigger cars by weight into the categories based on what the horsepower was rated at. The ultimate of the horsepower of the 60s and 70s occurred in 1970. There was only one manufacturer that increased its horsepower in cubic inches in 71, a little touch for my favorite manufacturer, AMC went from the 390 to the 401 in 71 and increased their horsepower to 330 horsepower, five more than the previous year. So having looked at that, we grew up in the muscle car era. I discovered muscle cars and cars before I discovered girls. So I remember a lot of these cars when I was a young teenager. I couldn't afford to buy them new, but drooled over them and came from a car family. So I've always loved the muscle cars. And even though I'm an AMC collector, I've had just about every brand over the course of years in muscle cars. And we found that there's a lot of separation right now in the muscle car hobby of people trying to say one brand owned the market or one brand succeeded where others failed. And part of the genesis of this book is to show that each manufacturer was up against the same obstacles of government and insurance and sales process. And they realized very quickly in 69 that the end was near. And for 18 months, 
these manufacturers first released in 69 and a half, what we call the package cars, designated purely for racing, whether that was street racing, NASCAR, or Daytona. And so in the book, we divide it up into those three categories of those package cars that were released. And a package car for our listening audience would be probably best known as the GTO Judge, which everybody remembers in the orange, which was actually carousel red, that they had the cartoon aspect of here come the judge and the bright colored stripes. And it was really designated for the youth of 1969. Who were watching Rowan and Martin's laugh in and had to tolerate the most stupid, but at the time, funny show on the air. The only thing that was more stupid and maybe funnier was Hee Haw, which came afterward. But boy, now I'm really dating myself. But that here come the judge and the little decal on the front fenders of those cars, they were really, really quite something. And of course, if you were driving a judge back then, you had a little bit of taste and a little bit of money to go with it because it was certainly not the cheapest of the muscle cars. The first year, 69 and a half, was actually pretty economical as a muscle car. That's a good differentiator between 69 and a half and 70. We found that when we did all of our research that the 69 and a halfs were advertised with a fixed price and very basic. Some of them had rubber floor mats and not carpet and an AM radio was luxury, but they were meant to go fast. But by 70, that changed. And by 70, the more money you had, the more muscle you could afford. And with it came creature comforts like air conditioning and power steering and AMA track radios that you couldn't find in a lot of these cars in the 69 and a half package cars. Even before that. Yes. And of course, the irony for collectors today is that you want the stripperest of stripper cars you could possibly find. Dog dish, hubcaps, radio delete, heater delete for that matter. I mean, everything. Just forget about it. I want the bare bones car and like that. But certainly customers were clamoring for a little bit in the way of luxury. I mean, even poor old Carol Shelby had to add some gigos to his 66 GT350 in order to sell them because 65s were too much of a real race car. This is fascinating stuff and there are so many cars to talk about. I'm kind of an OCD guy and I'm a taxonomist. I like to be able to see lists so that I can put things in order and really kind of grasp the big picture. And the table of contents of your book is fascinating. I should actually keep this thing in my wallet because it basically lays out every single brand and every single model that was a part of the muscle car universe. So I'm looking, you got 13 cars in 69 and a half, and you got 22 different cars in 1970. And again, from everybody up to and including your beloved AMC. Now, boy, talk about an oddball. And we'll take some time to talk about that oddball later on, because American Motors is like the unsung hero of the muscle car era. So this book is like the Encyclopedia Britannica of muscle. Of course, a lot of stuff was happening in 69 too. I mean, it wasn't just Rowan and Martin's laughing. Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. And less than a month later, Jimi Hendrix and all the hippies, which my aunt best called me, were reveling at Woodstock. It was quite a period. There was all kinds of stuff going on back then. Interesting anecdote about that particular reference is you brought back a memory for me is I lived in New Jersey at the time, grew up in New Jersey, and we were driving to Montreal from New Jersey the weekend of Woodstock and the New York State Thruway was a disaster. Especially because of all those broken down Volkswagen buses with the hippies in them trying to get there. And of course, those things didn't always make it. We took some time in the book to make sure that young readers who didn't experience that got to bring in all the different things that were happening socially 
around the United States at the same time that these psychedelic cars and colors were coming out in the late 60s. We touched about that a little bit in the preamble on each. We didn't want to make it a book about the whole era, but we wanted people to know that the youth were doing things each day that got them on the news. And therefore, the marketing of the cars turned from the stodgy business people and the station wagons full of uh, baseball player kids. We wanted the people to know, reading the book, that this was a turn in the marketing of cars, where they started reaching out to the young people for performance cars. And then even in the book, we cover how that translated into the small cars, the Vega, the Gremlin, the Pinto, the Maverick. At the end of the muscle car era, that was the replacement. And the engineers started in the mid to late 60s designing those small cars when all of this other social aspect was going on. And yet they interrupted that and released these high performance muscle cars as if they were in a panic in 69 and a half and 70, knowing that the end was coming. All of a sudden, we were flooded with choices, sometimes by a single manufacturer with too many choices, like we talk about with Ford. But all these choices, all going after that young dollar and even the young professional dollar that was now a buying influence. That's right. And boy, what a laundry list of luminaries in the car world. We'll talk about a few of those later on as we kind of dive deep into makes and models and get your guys' expertise on those things. For me, apart from Mark to a whole young flower power generation. You had everything from guys going off to fight in Vietnam and some of them never even came back, you know, and the stories of the parents having to sell their son's car because he never came home. You know, that's tear-jerking stuff. Down to selling secretaries, little Mustangs. Hey, I got a question for you, and I don't want to derail this, but if we're talking about muscle cars, what's a pony car? Can you explain that to our audience? We both have an opinion, so I'll let Rich start. <laughs> well, the pony cars grew out of the Mustang. I consider it a subset of the muscle car universe. Generally, pony cars were compact cars. The Mustang was a variation of the Falcon. Barracuda and the Valiant. Exactly. The dregs at the time or the less expensive cars all of a sudden saw an opportunity to get a little sportier. Well, each of the manufacturers found a way by 1967 to put big block engines between the shock towers. So the Mustang especially was a metamorphosis from the 66 to the 67 model where you got a big block 390. They spun the Mercury Cougar off at the same time. GM introduced the Firebird and the Camaro in 67. The Firebird, most people don't realize, was a 67 and a half That's introduction. Right. And in the case of the Firebird, I've always been attracted to the ones that then there's very few of them left that had the overhead cam six-cylinder engine, which is kind of a hybrid hybrid. That is a rare car. I've never had anybody on this show that even knew it existed. Well, you got the two wackiest. Yeah guests on your show probably you'll ever have. But 68 AMC came out with their Javelin, which was a variation of the American, which was my first car. That's how they evolved. And what's interesting, again, a little bit of AMC minutia, all the AMC V8s were small box, even though they were displaced into almost seven liters, but they all were built on a similar architecture of what started out at 290 cubic inches. And it just got bored and stroked until they couldn't bore and stroke them anymore. That was a beautiful engine, by the way. I mean, that's a V8 that does not get enough credit. Now, personally, I guess if I had to hang a V8 engine in the Hall of Fame, it would be a Ford 289 just because of all the illustrious history that goes with it. But the unsung hero of the V8s were some of those larger displacement AMC motors. Those were brilliant. 
designs and bulletproof. I've owned many of the AMC 390s, including an SC Rambler that is in the book, and then a 70 Mark Donahue Javelin with the 390, and then just picked up an AMX with a 401 that doesn't fit within our book guidelines because that was introduced in 71. But I agree. I think AMC, like Pontiac, was the stepbrother that had to deal with a limited budget and accomplish more. And so Pontiac was able to accomplish that with their V8 going all the way from the 326 up to the 428 cubic inch, all in a small block, and then eventually the 455. But AMC did the same aspect certain limitations on tooling, limitations on warehousing and capabilities that the big three didn't really have. And we try and talk throughout this book, we try and talk about the unsung heroes, whether that's a Buick GSX, if it's a stage one, but we also talk about factory produced rather than aftermarket created. And we talk a little bit about things like Copo, but the Copo was available in early 69, the Copo Camaro and Chevelle. And explain to our audience what Copo means. So a Copo was corporate Central uh, office. Central office. Central office production order, I guess. Right. And a Copo car, Chevrolet got around the restriction that they put on a 400 cubic inch for any of their pony and midsize cars. And they got around it by doing special fleet deliveries under that Copo number. And they started putting 427 V8s in Camaros and Chevelles and sold them to people like Dick Harrell and Yanko and a few others who didn't have to do an engine conversion in order to get the high-performance cars on the street. And it's a very significant car in the history of muscle cars. But being that we have a window of 18 months, we ignored most of those cars introduced prior to 69. We touched a little bit on the Copo program so people would understand it. But we really were looking at that frenzy that occurred from January 1969 until the end of production 1970, which would have been about August of 1970. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Mark Fletcher and Rich Truesdell. Looking at your TOC here, it really does kind of put the spotlight on what was at the time some serious motorsport competition. Your first part of that chapter is about the low-cost drag cars. So that's the Roadrunners and the Super Bs and the Judge or the Cougar Eliminator. But then also you talk about the SCCA muscle. Those Trans Am cars are the ones that fascinate me and some of the prettiest cars of the era. I mean, to me, those were, uh, boy, a three-car lineup of a Camaro and a Boss 302 and a Trans Am. It doesn't get much better than that. And then you talk about what you call the roundy round muscle cars, the NASCARs. And to me, a Dodge Charger Daytona. I mean, there's nothing better than that big old basket handled thing that looked like it came from outer space. Talk about how these cars were not just for racing, but how they kind of ended up in forming a whole consciousness once they hit the street. Well, let's talk a little bit about the NASCAR portion. Because that's, to me, very interesting how it evolved. NASCAR had been growing in cubic inches in their racing aspect. And they started realizing that as long as they were pushing bricks in wind, they weren't going to be able to get to the 
speed that would allow them to consistently win. And man, those things had all the aerodynamic aplomb of a phone booth, didn't they? I mean, they're just big old flat front ends. And, and scoops. The, the front ends had recessed grills for the public. If you remember a 68 Charger, a Javelin, most of those cars that were being run, they had a parachute they were pushing around the track. So Ford did something very creative when they introduced the Torino to the point that it really succeeded in the 68-69 series with the fastback. And this was one of the most flat windows they designed in that car. And it started at getting an edge, even though it wasn't necessarily in the cubic inch or horsepower aspect, enough that Richard Petty changed from Plymouth to Ford in 1969. And that got some of the people at Chrysler and the other people pretty upset. So the first thing they did was they put a satellite grill in the 69 Dodge Charger, trying to get rid of that air scoop in the front. And then they put a plug in the rear window and they called that a Charger 500. We don't talk a lot about that because that was the beginning of the year that they introduced that model. Well, when that didn't do the job, they got pretty wild and probably created the wildest visual design of any manufacturer. And that is called the Dodge Daytona. And it's based on the big Dodge Charger. And they put that pointed nose on the front and the wing on the back to hold it down. And they designed it. And NASCAR didn't like it too much. The big Hemi engine and that design. And they made them make 500 of them for the year to meet the requirements for racing. But then they upped it for the next year and they made it either 2000 or one for every two dealerships, depending on how you read it. But they had to make five times as many the next year. They couldn't sell those things either. When I my license in the late 70s. I remember a bright green. Now, this would be a Superbird the next year, the 70 model based on the Super B and the Roadrunner body. But the Superbird was still sitting on the car dealership in eastern Washington in sublime green, and they wanted the $7,000 sticker for it. And I couldn't convince my father that, that would make a good replacement for my 66 Rambler American. <laughs> they were laughed at when they went down the road in the 70s. We grew up in that era and the practical person didn't buy it. It was the basically the person that would be driving a hippie van, only they wanted to go faster. So they bought a Superbird. That's a Plymouth for those people who don't know what a Superbird was. Of course, Plymouth and Dodge were kissing cousins. A lot of badge engineering going on back then, although certainly more distinction than we have today. What incredible cars. So NASCAR really was an impetus for some aerodynamic advancements. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. What was going on in Trans Am? That was a little different kind of racing. That's my area of expertise. And what's interesting, because I'm looking at this table of contents myself on my laptop, is that all three cars had been photographed way prior to the production of the book. All were shot in a studio. Almost all the rest of the photography of mine and the outside contributors work, I would call location photography. But it's interesting that you can look at the Z28, the Camaro Z28, the Pontiac, Trans Am, and the Boss 302, which won the championship that year. So in the book, you're getting a different perspective. I don't want to say 
pure perspective of the design of those cars, but it's different than the rest of the book. It just worked out that way. There was a period of time from 2010 to the end of the decade that I shot a lot of cars in the studio. I would usually get a commission to do one car. And on the same day, I'd bring in seven more. <laughs> Somebody was paying the freight for the studio. And those were some very intense days. And I think about, as I've gotten older, I don't think I could maintain that pace. I do know that when I would do those shoots, they would start at eight o'clock in the morning and end at eight o'clock at night. And I would sleep for two days afterwards because it was just horrible graphing these cars coming in and out and in and out of the studio, but I loved it. I mean, you know, I'd live for it, but those Trans Am cars are my favorites. That's an interesting part of the book. It's just an aside, and you know, maybe I would forget about it later on, but the designers at Motorbooks, I think, did an outstanding yes. job with the design of the book. I had a lot of input to it, particularly on the cover where I wanted the book's cover to stand out from all the other muscle car books out there. And it was my idea to have the four side profile images of the cars on the cover, one from AMC, one from Ford, one from GM, one from Chrysler. We've got an outstanding cover. And this is a category of cars that has been written about literally dozens of times by some very, very good author and colleagues of mine from the magazine business. And the Motorbooks people just, I think, did an outstanding job. And quite frankly, I can't wait to get my hands on a hard copy of the book. <laughs> pretty damn proud of what we accomplished, Dennis and his team at Motorbooks and Mark and I and going to dozens of car shows. And I have to tell you, social media came into this helping us out in the, we were finishing up the photography of the book in early 2020 and then COVID hit. I was able to leverage my Facebook presence. I have the Facebook mandated 5,000 member maximum. And we were short probably 10 cars as of March 2020. And Dennis was on my case and said, Richard, how are you going to get this done? And I just went to Facebook. I went to various forums online and got all of the important cars. And then some left on the cutting room floor, literally, is one of the 52 1969 AMC SS AMXs. And I feel terrible about it because the owner of the car went through a lot of trouble to get photography for me. And there just wasn't the room for it. It came in too late. And those are really unfortunate things for me as a writer and a photographer and literally the assembly line worker of this book. I couldn't have done it without Mark. There's no question about it because he wrote the vast majority of the text. And I think we figured it out at 75, 25. And that allowed me to concentrate in March and April as the, the deadline Dennis was getting ready. I think he was ready to cancel the book and ask for her advance back, but we got everything done. And, and to me, the community online of the enthusiasts that own these cars is what made this book possible. And that, and I have to say, Dennis's patience with me, yes. understanding the troubles we were going against. And like I said, I think the design of the book, because I do design magazine and book design myself, when I saw the first PDF to proof, I just was really pretty happy. I was happy my name is on the cover with Mark's as well. Well, there's an awful lot to cram in between these covers because it is, as I say, encyclopedic in its contents. If I can add to that, the book will be purchased probably because of the fantastic photography that Rich is known for, capturing 
the look of the cars. We tried to keep the cars as stock as possible. And Rich really struggled when COVID occurred and we couldn't go out and physically catch those cars himself. And he had to rely on other photographers for a few of the photos. I know that's hard for him, but those photos had to meet his standards, which was hard for anybody else that was taking them. So I know that a lot of people will pick up the book, see the photography, and make decisions based on that photography. But what we didn't want to do was produce a book that was all about the LS6 and the Hemis and nothing else. We wanted people to remember the cars they saw in their hometown in Ohio and Kansas and where they grew up and remember the ride they took with the older brother that had the Emmy Roadrunner and so on. And so we've tried to take the written part of this book and bring people back to that period and era, as well as reaching out to many different clubs across the nation for details. Ford was one that, even though I've got a pretty solid history with Fords, when it came to the 428 and the 429, simultaneously being offered by Ford and Mercury and their vehicles, and keeping straight which ones were the Cobra Jet and the Super Cobra Jet, which weren't even in the advertising. That's right. Not to mention the fact the 427s were eventually not made, went on strike, and you've even got AC Cobras that aren't 427s. But that's a whole different chapter of a whole different book, huh? And keep in mind, with all of those things, we had to go to people in the hobby that know these details. And we expect that there will be some controversy because we put in some pretty good facts, but some of it's still being debated between collectors on which way cars came and which ways they didn't come. Isn't that great? And I think within the whole, I'm going to call it the whole muscle car arena, that's where you get not just the most heated debate, but that's where you get the greatest degree of camaraderie and dedication. If it weren't for the dedicated enthusiasts that organize and run the clubs and so many of the guys and even gals that are into the weeds with these cars, none of them would be preserved. And even the things that were reported by the car manufacturers have been proven to be inaccurate over the years. <laughs> grossly inflated in some cases, and in other cases, grossly underinflated. We talk about uh, when they were doing the certification for the Cyclone 2. That's a rare car. Explain to our audience what that is. So uh, in 69 and a half, Mercury also wanted in on the NASCAR wars. They were a much smaller, younger brother, so to speak, of Ford and didn't have quite the racing budget, but they wanted to be there. And so they created the Cyclone Spoiler 2 with the flush nose like a Ford Talladega had. And of course, the fastback aspect and the changed rocker panels. Turns out, by the way, just as a side note, the front fenders aren't interchangeable between them. They were made separately and we were able to get those details and include them. I talked to Bill Straub's son. Yeah. Exactly. That's why we need guys like you, because I didn't know those fenders were not interchangeable. (laughs) That's what we're hoping to do with the book is to make sure that people catch those details. And to get back to where my story was going, they were actually trying to count all the Cyclone spoilers to meet the homologation rules for NASCAR. And they were moving cars around a building and counting them more than once. And the middle (laughs) of the pile of cars that could be viewed from a higher area, what we call the W-nose version, or not the flush-nose version, of the cars, painted in both the Cale Yarborough and Dan Gurney, different paint schemes, blue and red, highlighting, but they mixed in regular production cars painted to match and then turned around and sold those cars as well in order to get around the numbers. So we have a number that was given to us, but there's no guarantee it's accurate. We did our best to get the correct numbers 
as known today. But as new information comes out, and they still do on this, we may have a difference of opinion in two years on what that number really was. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And back then, if it was a matter of making enough damn cars to be able to hit the track, manufacturers did any number of things to make sure that happened. Just talk to any Italian. (laughs) Robert, what I think is interesting about this is that with all the auction interest in these cars, they've gotten documentation that is conflicting, but it is part of the body of work, so to speak, the research. I give a lot of credit to the auction companies, all the major houses, mm-hmm. Barrett, Jackson, Gooding, and Meekum especially, that has preserved so much of the information on these cars just with the various auction listings. And that's important for future historians. I grew up at coming of age driving when these cars were ending their run. Never owned one in period, couldn't afford to. Subsequently, I have owned a couple. Some of my favorite times behind the wheel have been behind the wheel of these cars. I had a 68 390 Cougar with manual brakes. And I can tell you that. Fred Flintstone couldn't stop that thing. Yeah, I remember coming home from my student teaching assignment in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, and driving home to New Jersey. And it's only like 21 at the time. It was a white knuckle drive home and in a car that was 60% of its weight was over the front wheels with manual drum brakes. Not I don't think I've had a more difficult driving experience in my life. And and that includes 180 miles an hour on the Autobahn in Germany. Mark, Rich, and I still had more we wanted to talk about. So come back next week as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.